Section 41 of Revelations of a Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Revelations of a Wife by Adele Garrison. Chapter 41. Why did Dicky go? Margaret, I have the queerest message from Richard. I cannot make it out. My mother-in-law rustled into my room, her voice querulous, her face expressing the utmost bewilderment. "'What is it, mother?' I asked nervously. It was late afternoon of the day in which Robert Gordon had revealed his identity as my father, and my nerves were still tense from the shock of the discovery. "'Why, Richard has left the city!' He telephoned me just now that he had an unexpected offer at an unusual sum to do some work in San Francisco, I think, he said, and that he would be gone some months. If he accepted the offer, he would have no time to come home. He said he would write to both of us tonight. What do you suppose it means? I do not know. I returned slowly and truthfully, but there was a terrible frightened feeling at my heart. Dicky gone for months without coming to bid me good-bye? My world seemed to whirl around me, but I must do or say nothing to alarm my mother-in-law. Her weak heart made it imperative that she be shielded from worry of any kind. I rallied every atom of self-control I possessed. There is nothing to worry about, mother, I said carelessly. Dicky has often spoken recently about this offer to go to San Francisco, it was always tentative before, but he knew that when it did come he would have to go at a minute's notice. You know he always keeps a bag packed at the studio for just such emergencies. The last part of my little speech was true. Dicky did keep a bag packed for the emergency summons he once in a while received from his clients, but I had never heard of the trip to San Francisco. But I must reassure my mother-in-law in some way. "'Well, I think it's mighty queer,' she grumbled, going out of the room. "'You adorable little fibber,' Lillian said tenderly, rising and coming over to me. Her voice was gay, but I, who knew its every intonation, caught an undertone of worry. "'Lillian!' I exclaimed sharply. "'What is it? Do you know anything?' "'Hush, child,' she said firmly. "'I know nothing.' You will hear all about it tomorrow morning when you receive Dickie's letters. Until then, you must be quiet and brave. It was like her not to adjure me to keep from worrying. She never did the usual futile things. But all through my wakeful night, whenever I turned over or uttered the slightest sound, she was at my side in an instant. Never until death stops my memory will I forget that next morning with its letters from Dicky. There was one for my mother-in-law, none for me, but I saw an envelope in Lillian's hand, which I was sure was from my husband, even before I had seen the shocked pallor which spread over her face as she read it. "'Oh, Lillian, what is it?' I whispered in terror. "'Wait,' she commanded. Do not let your mother-in-law guess anything is amiss. But when Mother Graham's demand to know what Dickie had written to me had been appeased by Lillian's off-hand remark that country mails were never reliable, 
and that my letter would probably arrive later, the elder woman went to her own room to puzzle anew over her son's letter, which simply said over again what he had told her over the telephone. When she had gone, Lillian locked the door softly behind her, then, coming over to me, sank down by my bedside and slipped her arm around me. "'You must be brave, Madge,' she said quietly. "'Read this through and tell me if you have any idea what it means.' I took the letter she held out to me and read it through. "'Dear Lil,' the letter began, "'you have never failed me yet, so I know you'll look after things for me now. I am going away. I shall never see Madge again, nor do I ever expect to hear from her. Will you look out for her until she is free from me? She can sue me for desertion, you know, and get her divorce. I will put in no defense.' Most of her funds are banked in her name, anyway. But for fear she will not want to use that money, I am going to send a check to you each month for her, which you are to use as you see fit, with or without her knowledge. I am enclosing the key of the studio. The rent is paid a long ways ahead, and I will send you the money for future payments and its care. Please have it kept ready for me to walk in at any time. Mother always goes to Elizabeth's for the holidays, anyway. Keep her from guessing as long as you can. I'll write to her after she gets to Elizabeth's. I guess that's all. If Madge doesn't understand why I am doing this, I can't help it. But it's the only thing to do. Yours always, Dickie. The room seemed to whirl around me as I read. Dickie gone forever? Arranging for me to get a divorce? I clung blindly to Lillian as I moaned. Oh, what does it mean? Think, Madge. Madge, have you and Dickie had any quarrel lately? Nothing that could be called a quarrel, no, I returned, and not even the shadow of a disagreement since my accident. Then, Lillian said musingly, either Dickie has gone suddenly mad. She stopped and looked at me searchingly. Or what, Lillian? I pleaded. Tell me, I am strong enough to stand the truth, but not suspense. I believe you are, she said, and you will have to help me find out the truth. Now, remember this may have no bearing on the thing at all, but Harry saw Grace Draper talking to Dicky the other day. He said Dicky didn't act particularly well pleased at the meeting, but that the girl was, as Harry put it, fit to put your eyes out. She looked so stunning. But it doesn't seem possible that if Dicky had gone away with her, he would write that sort of a note to me and leave no word for you. Fit to put your eyes out, the phrase stung me. With a quick movement, I grasped the hand mirror that lay on the stand by my bed and looked critically at the image reflected there. Wan, hollow-eyed, with one side of my face and neck still flaming from my burns, I had a quick perception of the way in which my husband, beauty-lover that he is, must have contrasted my appearance with that of Grace Draper. Lillian took the mirror forcibly from me and laid it out of my reach. "'This sort of thing won't do,' she said firmly. "'It only makes matters worse.' Now just be as brave as you possibly can. Remember, I am right here every minute. I could only cling to her, 
there seemed in all the world no refuge for me but Lillian's arms. The weeks immediately following Dicky's departure are almost a blank memory to me. I seemed stunned, incapable of action, even of thinking clearly. If it had not been for Lillian, I do not know what I should have done. She cared for me with infinite tenderness and understanding. She stood between me and the imperative curiosity and bewilderment of my mother-in-law, and she made all the arrangements necessary for my taking up my life as a thing apart from my husband. It seemed almost like an interposition of providence that two days after Dicky's bombshell, his mother received a letter from her daughter Elizabeth asking her to go to Florida for the rest of the winter. One of the children had been ordered south by the family physician, and Dicky's sister was to accompany her little daughter, while the other children remained at home under the care of their father and his mother. Mother Graham dearly loves to travel, and I knew from Lillian's reports, and the few glimpses I had of my mother-in-law, that she was delighted with the prospect before her. How Lillian managed to quiet the elder woman's natural worry about Dicky, her half-formed suspicion that something was wrong, and her conviction that without her to look after me I should not be able to get through the winter, I never knew. I do not remember seeing my mother-in-law but once or twice in the interval between the receipt of Dicky's letter and her departure. The memory of her good-bye to me, however, is very distinct. She came into the room, cloaked and hatted, ready for the taxi which was to take her to the station. Katie was to go into New York with her and see her safely on the train. Her face was pale, and I noticed listlessly that her eyelids were reddened as if she had been weeping. She bent and kissed me tenderly, and then she put her arms around me and held me tightly. "'I don't know what it is all about, dear child,' she said. "'I hope all is as it seems outwardly. But remember, Margaret, I am your friend, whatever happens.' And if it will help you any, you may remember that I, too, have had to walk the same sharp paved way. Then she went away. I remembered that she had said something of the kind once before, giving me to understand that Dicky's father had caused her much unhappiness. Did she believe, too, I wondered, that Dicky was with Grace Draper? that this brief infatuation for the girl had returned when he had seen her again? For days after that I drifted, there is no other word for it, through the hours of each day. When it was absolutely necessary for Lillian to know some detail which I alone could give her, she would come to me, rouse me, and holding me to the subject by the sheer force of her will, obtain the information she wished, and then leave me to myself, or rather to Katie again. Katie was my devoted slave. She waited on me hand and foot, and made a most admirable nurse when Lillian was compelled to be absent. When I thought about the matter at all, I realized that Lillian was preparing to have me share her apartment in the city when I should be strong enough to leave my home. Harry Underwood had gone with my father to South America for a trip which would take many months, so I made no protest. 
I knew also, because of questions she had made me answer, that she had arranged with the Lotus Study Club to have an old teaching comrade of mine, a man who had experience in club lectures, take my place until I should be well enough to go back to the work. In so far as I could feel anything, the knowledge that I was still to have my club work gratified me. The twenty dollars a week which it paid me, while not large, would preserve my independence until I could gain courage to go back to my teaching. For one feeling obsessed me, was strong enough to penetrate the lethargy of mind and body in which Dicky's letter had thrown me. I spoke of it to Lillian one day. Do not use any of Dicky's money, I said slowly and painfully, my own bank book and desk. She took it out, and I also gave her the bank book and papers my father had given me the day before he left for South America. Keep them for me, I whispered, and then at her tender comprehending smile, I had a sudden revelation. Then you know. Astonishment made my voice stronger. That Robert Gordon is your father? she returned briskly. Bless you, child, I've suspected it ever since I first heard of his emotion on hearing the names of your parents. But nobody else knows. I didn't think it necessary to tell your mother-in-law or Katie, unless, of course, you want me to do so. Her smile was so cheery, so infectious, that I could not help but smile back at her. There was still something on my mind, however. This house must be closed. I told her, try to find positions for Katie and Jim. I'll attend to everything, she promised, and I did not realize that her words meant directly opposite to the interpretation I put upon them until after myself and all my personal belongings had been moved to Lillian's apartment in the city, and I had thrown off the terrible physical weakness and mental lethargy which had been mine. I had to do as I thought best about the house in Marvin, Madge, she said firmly. I thoroughly respect your feeling about using any of Dicky's money for your own expenses, but you are not living in the Marvin house. It is simply Dicky's home, which, as his friend, commissioned to see after his affairs, I am going to keep in readiness for his return unless I receive other instructions from him. Jim and Katie will stay there as caretakers until this horrible mistake, whatever it may be, is cleared up. Thus your home will be always waiting for you. Never my home again, I fear, Lillian, I said sadly. There is no magic of healing like that held in the hands of a little child. It was providential for me that a short time after Lillian took me to the apartment which had been home to her for years, her small daughter Marian was restored to her. The child's father died suddenly, after all, and to Lillian fell the task of caring for and comforting the old mother of the man who had done his best to spoil Lillian's life. She brought the aged and feeble sufferer to the apartment, established her in the bedroom which Lillian had always kept for herself, and engaged a nurse to care for her. When I recalled Lillian's story, I remembered that her first husband's mother, without a jot of evidence to go upon, had believed her son's vile accusations against Lillian. My friend's forgiveness seemed almost divine to me. 
I am afraid I never could have equaled it. When I said as much to Lillian, she looked at me uncomprehendingly. "'Why, Madge,' she said, "'there was nothing else to do. Marion's grandmother is devoted to her. To separate them now would kill the old woman. Besides, her income is so limited that she cannot have the proper care unless I do take her in. I thought you said Mr. Morton had a legacy about the time of his second marriage.' he did but most of it has been dissipated i imagine and what there is left is in the possession of his wife a woman with no more red blood than a codfish she would let his mother starve before she would exert herself to help her or part with any money no there is nothing else to do madge i'll just have to work a little harder that's all and that's good for me best reducing system there is you know the sheer indomitable courage of her, taking up burdens in her middle age which should never be hers, and assuming them with a smile and jest upon her lips. I felt suddenly ashamed of the weakness with which I had met my own problems. Lillian, I said abruptly, you make me ashamed of myself. I'm going to stop grieving, as much as I can, I qualified, and get to work. Tell me, how can I best help you? I'm going back to my club work next week. I am sure I shall be strong enough by then, but I shall have such loads of time outside. My friend came over to me impetuously and kissed me warmly. You blessed child, she said. I am so glad if anything has roused you. I am going to accept your words in the spirit in which I am sure they were uttered. If you can share Marion with me for a while, it will help me more than anything else. I have so many orders piled up, I don't know where to begin first. Her grandmother is too ill to attend to her, and I don't want to leave her with any hired attendant. She has had too many of those already. Don't say another word, I interrupted. There's nothing on earth I'd rather do just now than take care of Marion. Thus began a long succession of peaceful days spent with Lillian's small daughter. She was a bewitching little creature of nine years, but so tiny that she appeared more like a child of six. I had taught many children, but never had been associated with the child at home. I grew sincerely attached to the little creature, and she, in turn, appeared very fond of me. Lillian told her to call me Aunt Madge, and the sound of the title was grateful to me. "'Auntie Madge! Auntie Madge!' the sweet childish voice rang the changes on the name so often that I grew to associate my name with the love I felt for the child. This made it all the harder for me to bear, when the child's hand all unwittingly brought me the hardest blow fate had yet dealt me. It was her chief delight to answer the postman's ring and bring me the mail each day. On this particular afternoon I had been especially busy and thus less miserable than usual. I heard the postman's ring and then the voice of Marion. Auntie Madge, it's a letter for you this time. I began to tremble for some unaccountable reason. It was as though the shadow of the letter the child was bringing had already begun to fall on me. As she ran to me and held out the letter, 
I saw that it was postmarked San Francisco, but the handwriting was not Dicky's. I opened it, and from it fell a single sheet of notepaper inscribed, She laughs best who laughs last, Grace Draper. I looked at the thing until it seemed to me that the characters were alive and writhed upon the paper. I shudderingly put the paper away from me, and leaned back in my chair and shut my eyes. Then Marian's little arms were around my neck, her warm, moist kisses upon my cheek, her frightened voice in my ears. "'Oh, Auntie Madge,' she said, "'what was in the naughty letter that hurt you so? Nasty old thing! I'm going to tear it up!' "'No, no, Marian,' I answered. "'I must let your mother see it first. Call her, dear, won't you, please?' When Lillian came, I mutely showed her the note. She studied it carefully, frowning as she did so. "'Pleasant creature,' she commented at last. "'But I shouldn't put too much dependence on this, Madge. She may be with him, of course. But you ought to know that truth is a mere detail with Grace Draper. She would just as soon have sent this to you if she had not seen him for weeks and knew no more of his address than you.' "'But this is postmarked San Francisco,' I said faintly. Lillian laughed shortly. "'My dear little innocent,' she said, "'it would be the easiest thing in the world for her to send this envelope enclosed in one to some friend in San Francisco who would redirect it for her.' "'I never thought of that,' I said, flushing. "'But, oh, Lillian, if he did not go away with her, what possible explanation is there of his leaving like this? Yes, I know, dear, she returned. It's a mystery, and one in the solving of which I seem perfectly helpless. I do wish someone would drop from the sky to help us. End of chapter 41